welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott. In 1938, while Stott was attending the Christian Union at Rugby School, Eric Nash, widely known as Bash, came to give a talk. His text was Pilate's question, What then shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Nash continued that I needed to do anything with Jesus was an entirely novel idea to me, for I had imagined that somehow he had accomplished whatever needed to be done, and that my part was only to acquiesce. This Mr. Nash was quietly but powerfully insisting that everybody had to do something about Jesus, and nobody could remain neutral. Either we copy Pilate and weakly reject Jesus, or we accept him personally and follow him. After talking privately with Eric John Hewitson Nash and thinking the rest of the day, Stott realized that the door had been opened to Christ. When Stott speaks, he has a voice that is friendly, courteous, and natural. Stott's mission is to pierce through all the encrustation and share direct contact with Jesus. Stott says that the central message of the gospel is not the teachings of Jesus, but Jesus himself, the human, divine figure. He is always bringing people back to the concrete reality of Jesus' life and sacrifice. Today's message is The Cross and the Christian. We're beginning today a series of addresses entitled The Cross and the Christian. There should, I think, be no need to give any explanation, still less to apologize for concentrating exclusively in this series on the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, because the cross is frankly central to the Christian religion. And it's safe to say there is no Christianity without the cross. Thus, the cross was central in the mind of Jesus. He predicted it repeatedly. He referred to it as his hour for which he come into the world. And he set his face steadfastly to walk the way of the cross, resisting all attempts to deflect him from this path. Next, it was central in the mind of the apostles, and notably of the apostle Paul, who declared his resolve to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified, and to glory in nothing, save the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, and Galatians 6, verse 14. Next, it has been central in the mind of the church, at least whenever the church has been faithful to the word of God. For the church has rightly adopted the cross as the symbol of the Christian faith. Wherever you see Christianity, you see a cross. The church, in the Church of England at least, and in some other churches, signs us with the sign of a cross at our baptism, and marks our grave with the same sign of a cross after our death and burial. It must be plain, therefore, that if the cross has been central in the mind of Jesus and his apostles and of the Christian church, it should be equally central in the mind of the Christian. It should be central in your mind and mine. 
Our first subject then today, I'm entitling the cross and the Old Testament scriptures. And I take as our text three verses which come in the last chapter of St. Luke's Gospel. St. Luke chapter 24, and I begin to read at verse 44. This is the risen Jesus, who said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ, that is, thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. <clears throat> now here is the Lord Jesus Christ, mark you, after the resurrection, solemnly confirming and amplifying the teaching which he has given during his earthly ministry. He has not changed his mind, he contradicts nothing, he withdraws nothing. He simply opens the minds of the disciples to understand what they had only dimly perceived before, namely that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, verse 46, and it was necessary because it was written in the Old Testament scriptures. And indeed, verse 44, everything written about him in the law, in the prophets, and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Jesus implied they should not have been taken by surprise. His death and resurrection, he said, were foreshadowed and foretold in the Old Testament. They should have expected them, but they were blind. Oh, they'd known and believed in the Old Testament passages describing the glory and the exaltation of the Messiah, but somehow they'd missed or turned a blind eye to those passages equally clear describing his humiliation and his death. They'd reveled, for instance, in the glorious kingdom of the Son of Man depicted in Daniel chapter 7, but they'd not noticed the cruel sufferings of the servant of the Lord depicted in Isaiah 53, sufferings by which he would enter into his glory. Incidentally, this should be a warning to us to receive the full witness of Scripture and not to pick and choose, accepting what we like and rejecting what we don't like. After the resurrection, Jesus stressed that not just some things, but, you notice, verse 44, all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Nowhere, then, in the New Testament is the death of Jesus regarded as a tragic mistake, as an unforeseen accident, or as an afterthought in the providence of God. No, everywhere <clears throat> in the New Testament, the death of Jesus is regarded as part of the eternal purpose of God, that his Son should die for the sins of men. True, it is stated <clears throat> that he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But it's added that he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Acts 2 verse 23. I think it's important that we should look at some of the evidence for this statement. Jesus himself plainly 
and repeatedly said so. When he began to teach at Caesarea Philippi, after Peter had confessed faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, after Jesus began to teach that the Son of Man must suffer, it's plain that the must was included in his sentence because the scriptures had said so. That's the meaning of this must. That's Mark 8, verse 31, and you can compare Mark 9, verse 12. Or again, a little later, he said, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written of the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, including, he went on to say, his delivery to the Gentiles, his mockery, his death, and his resurrection. That's Luke 18, verses 31 to 33. When Peter tried to avert the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane by drawing his sword and lunging out into the night, Jesus said that he didn't need the protection of men. Did Peter not know that if the Son were to appeal to the Father, more than twelve legions of angels would immediately fly to his aid? But Jesus added, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? Matthew 26, verse 54. What Jesus found predetermined in the Old Testament scriptures about the suffering and death of the Messiah, he determined voluntarily to fulfill. The compulsion, this must, was that of his father's will, but it was deliberately embraced by his own will. There was no dichotomy between the will of the Father and the will of the Son. The Son had come to do the Father's will. He freely chose to obey it. He said it was his meat to do his Father's will and to finish his work. So although there was a must about the death of Jesus, it was still quite voluntary. No man takes my life from me, he said. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. John 10 verse 18. And after the resurrection in my text, and in the same chapter, Luke 24, verses 25 to 27, where he rebuked the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus confirmed the indispensable necessity of his sufferings according to the scriptures. If Jesus taught this, the apostles did likewise. The apostles who'd been so dull in their understanding came to accept the necessity of the death of Jesus and to teach it to others. Peter, in one of his speeches in Acts 3.18, said, What God foreordained by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ should suffer, he thus fulfilled. Or we turn from the Apostle Peter to the Apostle Paul. When preaching in the synagogue, in Pisidian Antioch, recorded in Acts 13, verses 26 to 33, Paul said this, uh, They that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them, that is the prophets, in condemning Jesus. And there they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulchre, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are witness unto the people. 
And we declare unto you, verse 32, glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God has fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus from the dead. So you see, with regard to the sufferings and the resurrection of Jesus, there is a fulfillment of Old Testament promise and prophecy. Similarly, in Thessalonica, Paul visited the Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath day, three weeks running, and we read he argued with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, Acts 17, verse 2. Or well, once again, when he was on trial before King Agrippa, Acts 26, verses 22 to 23, he said this, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And one other Pauline reference in the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 3 to 5, he says to them, I delivered unto you as of first importance what I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared, and so on. I think you will agree with me, therefore, that the general fact is plain beyond any doubt or dispute. The sufferings and the death of the Messiah were part of the definite plan of God. They were therefore foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. Here Jesus found them. He found his messianic destiny described in the Old Testament scriptures, and he determined voluntarily to fulfill it. The apostles emphasized the same truth in their teaching. Now that's the necessary background of everything that we go on today to say, that the death of Jesus was foretold in the Old Testament scriptures. But the question that should be in your mind is this, precisely what were the nature and the purpose and the function of these sufferings of the Messiah forecast in the Old Testament scriptures? What uh, do these Old Testament scriptures tell us about the nature and purpose and function of the Messiah's death? Well, according to the risen Jesus in my text, the sufferings and the resurrection of the Messiah were predicted in all three uh, divisions into which the Jews had uh, divided the Old Testament scriptures. For in uh, Luke 24, verse uh, 44, Jesus said that all things must be fulfilled which are written in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms uh, concerning me. Now, the law was, of course, the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. The prophets, in Jewish reckoning, uh, was all the, what we call the major and the minor prophets, with the exception of Daniel, plus Joshua, Judges, the books of Samuel, and the books of Kings. While the third division, the Psalms, or more literally the Hagiographer, the sacred writings, included the Psalms themselves, the other wisdom literature like Proverbs, uh, the book of Daniel, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the books of Chronicles. These were the three sections into which the Jews had divided the Old Testament. And Jesus said that everything written of him in each of these three sections 
uh, must be fulfilled. What did he mean? Well, I suppose we wish we could have been there to hear his exposition. We're certainly not at liberty to make wild conjectures. But can we reconstruct what Jesus may have said uh, on that occasion from what he did say elsewhere during his earthly ministry? I want to attempt to do so and to single out one main theme from each of the three divisions of the Old Testament. And as we do so, we shall relate the death of Jesus, first to sin, second to God, and thirdly to faith. Firstly then, in the prophets, we see the cross in relation to sin. Now Jesus quoted from several Old Testament prophets, for instance from Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9, he described the lowly entry of the Messiah into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. While in Zechariah 13.7 we read about the smiting of the shepherd as a result of which the sheep would be scattered abroad. But the prophetic forecast which most coloured the understanding of Jesus concerning the purpose of his death was Isaiah chapter 53. Here we read of the servant of the Lord who suffers and dies for the sins of others. Already the heavenly voice at his baptism had said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. A phrase taken from one of the other servant songs at the beginning of Isaiah 42. Whenever Jesus spoke of himself as a servant, he was alluding to these servant songs of Isaiah. For instance, I am among you as one who serves. Luke 22, verse 27. And in Luke 22, 37, there is a plain quotation from Isaiah 53 when he said, I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was reckoned with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Now, if we look at Isaiah 53, in this portrait of the grievous sufferings of the servant of the Lord, the principle of substitution stands out very plainly. That is to say that the suffering servant makes himself the substitute for sinners. He stands in their place, and in their place he endures their penalty. For instance, verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, a prophetic past tense, he bore the sin of many. Twice we're told here that he will bear our sins or iniquities. Now to bear sin is an Old Testament expression for to bear the consequences of sin, to suffer the penalty of sin. When in the law of Moses you read of somebody, he shall bear his iniquity, it means that he must endure the penalty of his sin. But here we're told that Jesus, the suffering servant of the Lord, will bear our sins, suffering their penalty. That this is what it means is clear in Isaiah 53 from verses 5 and 6, where we read, He was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment for our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, it's plain, isn't it? We committed the transgressions, he was wounded for them. We committed the iniquities, he was bruised 
for them. We committed the sins. The Lord laid them on him. Our peace is due to his punishment and our healing to his stripes. Again in verse 8, he was stricken for the transgression of my people. Now Jesus interpreted his death in the light of this whole chapter. And to it Jesus was no doubt alluding when he said, as it's recorded in Mark 10, 45, uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, it was as the servant of the Lord that he laid down his life as a ransom instead of many. So in the prophets, I say again, we see the cross in relation to sin and substitution. Now secondly, in the Psalms, in the hagiographer, the sacred writings, we see the cross in relation to God. There are several Psalms which depict the sufferings of an innocent and godly victim, victim and which were quoted either by Jesus or of Jesus in the New Testament, especially Psalms 22 and 69. Let me concentrate on Psalm 22. It's quoted several times in the Passion Narrative. Now, at first sight, it seems to concentrate on the pains and insults heaped upon the sufferer by men. The priests mock him, wagging their heads and saying, he trusted in God, let God deliver him. His garments were divided and lots were cast for his tunic. And other verses in Psalm 22 portray in gruesome detail the physical pain of crucifixion, although these verses are not quoted in the New Testament. The victim is poured out like water, his bones are out of joint, his strength is dried up like a potsherd, his tongue cleaves to his jaws, his hands and feet are pierced, and he says he can count all his bones. Now here are the pains and insults heaped upon the sufferer by men. But to concentrate on these in Psalm 22 would be a very superficial interpretation of the psalm. For at a deeper level, the sufferer is preoccupied with his relation to God, his sense of being forsaken by God at the beginning of the psalm and of being vindicated by God at the end. Thus, although the psalm goes on to describe vividly how men scorned him, mocked him, tormented him, crucified him, the psalm begins, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And Jesus quoted this verse, no doubt in the original Hebrew or Aramaic, on the cross. And we believe that the awful experience of becoming man's substitute and bearing man's sin involved him in this God-forsakenness. It wasn't the crucifixion in itself, but the God-forsakenness involved in crucifixion. Not the physical, but the spiritual pain which cost Jesus most. But he who was forsaken by God on the cross was vindicated by God in the resurrection. And Psalm 22 is divided into two halves, what the Revised Standard Version calls a cry of anguish and a song of praise. And together they set forth the sufferings and the glory, the humiliation and the exaltation of the Messiah. And it's important to realize that both are ascribed to God. It is this dimension, the relating of the cross to God, 
that we need to remember when considering the death of Jesus. It isn't what men did to Jesus when he died that is of the greatest importance, but what God did. First in forsaking him, when laying upon him the sins of men, and then in vindicating him by raising him from the dead. According to the speeches in the Acts of the Apostles, Jesus died on a tree, the place of a curse, under the curse of God. But he was raised from the dead by the power of God. And so if in the prophets we see the cross in relation to sin, in the Psalms we see the cross in relation to God. And thirdly, in the law of Moses we see the cross in relation to faith. Perhaps you ask, where do you find the death of Jesus foreshadowed and foretold in the Pentateuch, in the law of Moses? Well, several answers could be given to this question. We find it especially in the first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head. We find it also in the brazen serpent lifted up on the pole as Christ was to be lifted up on the cross. But in particular, we find the death of Jesus foreshadowed in the blood sacrifices of the Mosaic ritual. There were daily, weekly, monthly, annual sacrifices. The blood of animal sacrifices flowed freely. And the blood was recognized as the life, and the shedding of blood as the laying down of life. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, Leviticus 17.11. Now the question we need to ask frankly is, did Jesus think of his death as in any way fulfilling these mosaic sacrifices? And the answer is yes, indeed he did. It's significant that he referred to his death not just as the laying down of his life, but as the shedding of his blood. And whenever you read of the shedding of blood, there is an unmistakable sacrificial allusion especially when Jesus spoke of his blood as the blood of the covenant. Because just as the old covenant was established at Mount Sinai by the, a blood sacrifice, Exodus 24, so the blood shedding of Jesus would establish a new covenant. It was the blood of the covenant. Now we need to ask, what happened to the blood of sacrifice? The answer is that first it was shed and then it was sprinkled. First the sacrifice was made, and then its virtue was applied to something or somebody for personal cleansing. And these twin truths about the sacrifices of the law, Jesus applied to his own sacrifice. I've already referred to his utterance in the upper room about the shedding of blood, but what about the personal application of this blood to sinners, its appropriation by faith? Peter, in his first epistle, uses the daring expression, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is not found in the Gospels, but Jesus went further still. He profoundly shocked his contemporaries by speaking not of the sprinkling of his blood, but of the drinking of it. His hearers must have been horrified, because drink, the drinking of blood was strictly prohibited in the Old Testament. Now Jesus stressed that he was speaking figuratively. His words, he said, were spirit and life. But his meaning is quite plain. If blood means the virtue of his death, and if drinking means a personal inward appropriation, then drinking Christ's blood, 
means appropriating Christ inwardly as our personal and crucified Saviour. Now Jesus insisted much on the necessity of this. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John 6:53. It's plain that this appropriation by eating and drinking was a dramatic figure of speech for faith. Thus, John 6:47. he who believes has eternal life. John 6:54. he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. So to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus are to believe in Jesus. Eating and drinking are a vivid parable of faith. And this truth is permanently set forth in the Lord's Supper. For as the bread is not only broken but eaten, and as the wine is not only poured out but drunk, so it's not enough that Jesus died on the cross. We must feed on him in our hearts by faith. So to conclude, these are the Old Testament themes unfolded by Jesus in his public ministry, and it seems legitimate to say that he probably was expanding these themes after the resurrection from the law and the prophets and the Psalms. To sum up, first, this mass of evidence proves conclusively that the death of Jesus was not an accident. We must learn to think of his death primarily not in terms of the lawlessness of men who killed him, but in terms of the eternal purpose of God. Secondly, this divine purpose was a saving purpose. He, he bore our sins. He endured in our place as our substitute the penalty of our sins. This sin-bearing involved Jesus in God-forsakenness, but the God who forsook him on the cross decisively vindicated him in the resurrection. It was an eternal purpose. It was a saving purpose. And thirdly, God's saving purpose in the cross only comes to full fruition when we appropriate the sacrifice of Christ ourselves. In Christ's own striking, almost shocking language, we can say, his blood has indeed been shed, but we have got to drink it. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.